Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Cara Landau, who's also known as Travelling Dietitian, is a highly respected Australian accredited practicing dietitian, author, and founder of the prebiotic gut health brand Uplift Food, based in New York City, USA. A previous spokesperson for the Dietitians Association of Australia and now the nutrition advisor and media representative for the Global Prebiotic Association in the USA, Cara specializes in the connection between diet, gut health and mood and the vital role of prebiotic fibers and resistant starches. Founding Uplift Food, Good Mood Food, the world's first dietitian-created functional food brand to focus exclusively on the mood-supportive benefits of gut-healthy prebiotics. Cara's mission is to continue to educate, inspire, and make eating a prebiotic-rich diet easy and enjoyable to all those that she encounters. I can't wait for you guys to learn all about the importance of prebiotics from Cara today, so make sure you give her Instagram a follow, at Travelling Dietitian, and let's get right into today's incredible podcast on prebiotics. Well, welcome Cara to the podcast. We are very excited to have you on talking all about prebiotics today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Now, you are in the US and you have been for quite a while. Can you tell our listeners as a dietitian, um, but you also wear many hats, what sort of area um, of work do you currently work in? My key focus is in prebiotics, so the fuel for the probiotics. And I have developed a food company that's all focused around around that, so uh, called Uplift Food. Uh, and as the name suggests, it's looking at how prebiotics can support your gut health and therefore your mood to help you feel uplifted. Love it. I love the name. What got you interested in this area of, I guess, gut health and prebiotics specifically? So back in 2012, I first came to New York and I was feeling pretty stressed at the time. I'd gone through a break, a big breakup and I was already a dietitian and I just knew that there must be a way that nutrition can support your mood, but I wasn't sure what it was. So I took a deep dive into researching this topic uh, to write a book, which I did back then. And it was at that time that I actually discovered this link between gut health and mood, and in particular around prebiotics, which was really not being spoken about back back then, uh, the way it is today. So uh, that's how it all started. And I guess with the science growing and the interest around the world growing, it's really led into me focusing in on it. Yeah, it's such a, it's it's a really trendy topic, isn't it? But even, I wish it was more trendy. I guess we hear a lot of talk on, of probiotics online, but not too much about prebiotics. We've really, in the last few years, got so much great literature and data to really support the use of prebiotics, haven't we? Yeah, so it's almost like when you look at if people are looking for a cure or for prevention is how I see it. So we sort of started with that model of health and wellness being around cure and and that's, you know, that more using medications and probiotics almost could fit into that category because you're having to replace what you what might have been lost from your body. Uh, but prebiotics it's feeding what you already have inside of you. So it's it's preventative in that it's like fueling what you've got and keeping them alive so that they can thrive and therefore you can thrive. So in my mind, it's always about you know, nourishing yourself with the best foods that are going to keep you and therefore also your the probiotics in your gut uh, at their peak. I love that. That concept of um, preventative health as well, I think is so important. You know, too often we wait until we've got a disease or we've got an illness or something goes wrong to really take control of our life. But the way that you talk about it as in a preventative health, I love that concept as well. 
Yeah, it's it's shown so many times that when you nourish your gut with these probiotics, it helps maintain that diversity of all these different probiotic strains. And it's the strength of having that diversity in your gut that really supports your immune system, it prevents inflammation in your body, and then the plethora of health benefits that come from that. So in my mind, it would always make sense to nourish yourself and let your body kind of recalibrate itself as it needs to be uh, by giving it the fuel that it needs. Yeah, I love that. And I guess when I think about prebiotics, I just think in the simplest form, it's the what feeds our, our good bacteria, it fuels our good bacteria. Do you have any more, I guess, of a more in-depth um, definition for prebiotics? I actually love to stick with what you've just said. So I find that so many times people try to, you know, the definition used to be something around non-digestible carbohydrates that are selectively fueled by the probiotics to confer a health benefit to us, <laughs> the host. Now, that then that got changed to being from non-digestible carbohydrates, it got changed to non-digestible substrates um, because they realised that it wasn't only in these you know, fibrous, non-digestible carbohydrates that you could find prebiotic activity. But really, I just think that that, you know, not in a, I just think we don't need to go over people's heads like that. Like, let's just look at it really simply, like you just said, it's the fuel for the probiotics to let them thrive. And they come in such a range of different forms. And like, I'm really excited today to be able to help your listeners learn about them and understand them. Because I think so many times, you know, as much as we need to simplify the definition of what a prebiotic is so people understand the benefit. But then the actual like types of prebiotics, I think they sometimes get simplified too much. And so people just say, eat more fibre. And I and I sit there cringing to myself when I read this on, on media interviews and in, you know, on, on articles online, because I think, oh no, not, not like not every fibre is a prebiotic. And there's all these other foods that aren't classified as fibre that are also prebiotics and I don't want you to miss out on all of those things. So it's exciting that, you know, this topic is starting to be spoken about in more depth because it allows that opportunity for education. Definitely. And I'm so excited to have you on as an expert today talking purely about prebiotics, because as you mentioned, and even in Australia, it's just, it's not really a thing yet. You know, people are still really obsessed with probiotics and getting them in sort of capsule form or through food and that sort of thing. But we don't really give enough credit to prebiotics. And they are so important, if not even more important, if I dare say, than, than <laughs> probiotics. But, you know, they are both great in combination. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and and yeah, and I think that it's been really interesting. So because I'm, you know, I'm kind of this dietitian that spans between being health prof- health educator and media fronting around teaching, and then I also take the back, the you know, behind the scenes in product development and in food industry, I actually get to see a lot of information from like consumer research and, and when you're looking at what people understand versus what they don't understand. And it's really interesting to to see, you know, the stats when you ask people straight out, like, do you know what prebiotics are? Have you heard that word? And, you know, compared to probiotics. And prebiotics are so in their infancy uh, and there is so much, there's so much more room to, to move. But then at the same respect, when people, when they see prebiotics next to the word probiotics, they like the idea that they would work together. You know, they can make that association. They think that that sounds great. And, you know, having that synergistic uh, effect is, is something that is, under, is easily understood. Mm. And they call them symbiotics, don't they? The pre and the pros working together. Yeah. So symbiotics, uh, when you have them both sort of alongside each other, uh, it's not necessarily that the particular, like some, some companies will create a supplement as an example that they'll put both of them in together, but it's not necessarily that the particular prebiotic in that product uh, makes the particular probiotic in that product work more effectively. What it has been found to often do is because a lot of probiotics in supplemental food form often die on the way to our gut, sadly, uh, when they're when they're what they've found a lot of the time is that when they are they're, they're given to us in this form that connects the pre and the probiotics together. Uh, it makes the probiotics more likely to get to our gut to be able to survive to then do what they need to do. Very interesting. So that's really the nature of the symbiotic relationship rather than one, I guess, like boosts up the, the, the other one. It's more that it just helps it sort of survive and get to where it needs to go so it can sort of thrive in that, in that bowel bacteria. 
Yeah, so it can it can work the other way where you know where they do they work as we as you would have originally thought synergistically and the prebiotic can enhance the probiotic just in itself, but a lot of the time uh, the way that they work hand in hand can be in very simple terms just by able by making it making the probiotic able to to get to our gut. Wonderful. And you mentioned that obviously you do a lot of media work over in the States and you did a lot of media work when you were here in Australia before you moved over as well. Yeah. What are some big misconceptions that you hear around prebiotics? So a lot of the time I it's a bit scary to me people say if you eat more vegetables, you you just you've got all you'll get all your prebiotics. Uh, and don't get me wrong, like I that is my number one message, eat more vegetables if we could do one thing for ourselves. But not yes. When it comes to prebiotics, I actually truly don't believe it's that simple. Uh, and like you see, there's industry organisations that represent the scientific community around pre and probiotics here in the States. And they really quite clearly state, like, it, it's likely that many people w- will need a prebiotic supplement at this point in life based on current consumption patterns. And, and it's probably because a lot of the foods that are rich in prebiotics have slowly been removed from our diets. So, you know, as an example, some really rich sources of prebiotic soluble fibres are things like dandelion greens, Jerusalem artichokes, chicory roots. You know, these are not things that people consume on a daily basis, I don't Mm -hmm. think. Uh, And then, you know, the foods that are kind of the next in line, which I find are easier for people to, to tap into and say, oh, hey, I eat that, is things like asparagus, onion, garlic, but the density of how much prebiotics are inside there compared to some of those first foods that I mentioned is so is minimal. Uh, and then you kind of go down another layer to all the very commonly consumed foods like lettuce and carrots and tomatoes and things like that. And, and it's just dropping and dropping and dropping in terms of how much prebiotic activity they have. So I, I think that, I think that when, when we just kind of throw it out at people and say, you'll be fine if you're having your five serves of veggies. And I think, well, if you're also having your legumes and your lentils and your whole grains and some of these specific ones, then I trust that you're getting it. Uh, But if not, I I do think that there is often gaps and, and it's a bit scary because years and years and years ago when they look at, you know, when they look at studies from back in, like Paleolithic days as an example, uh, there was people were eating the equivalent of 135 grams of naturally occurring prebiotic inulin, which is a soluble fibre. And these days people are consuming around 5 to 10 grams, uh, if that. And so that's a significant difference when you think about the fuel for your gut bacteria and what they need. Yeah, that's a significant difference. Even just, as you mentioned, like, you know, people think about fiber, like even just the amount of fiber that we eat as a nation is is so, so much lower. But then when you break it down to specifics like um, prebiotics as well, that's mm. that's a huge difference, isn't it? Correct. And, and like when we think about the way that prebiotics work, you do need both the insoluble and the soluble fiber. So a lot of the time people just hone in and and say, oh, well, it's got this soluble fibre in it and this particular soluble fibre is a prebiotic and therefore that's all you need. And and I tend to think, well, hold on, you actually need some of that insoluble fibre, that rougher type to push those other fibres down so that the prebiotics can, you know, the the types of fibres that are prebiotics can really make their way to the distal part or the the end part uh, of your gut where they can really fuel the bacteria that are needed to then create butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid, which is known to have all these beneficial effects and anti-inflammatory effects. Wonderful, yes. So we've talked about prebiotics, we've talked about probiotics a little bit, we've talked about the symbiotics. (laughs) What about resistant starches? How do they sort of uh, play into the mix, I guess? Uh, Resistant starches are my absolute favourite. I love that you brought that up. So (laughs) resistant starches are another type of prebiotic. And as the name name suggests, they are starches that are resistant to digestion. So they're resistant to digestion by us as the humans, but they therefore almost act similarly to that prebiotic fibre in that they make their way to our gut uh, and they fuel the probiotics. What makes them particularly interesting is that they have this mechanism of almost knowing how to selectively fuel the good probiotics. So what you often find is that when you have 
some of the prebiotic fibres, they kind of feed a range of bacteria, including some of the good and some of the bad. And that's kind of where you sometimes lead into some of the irritable bowel issues, and we can go into that after. But when you have something like resistant starch, which knows how to selectively fuel the good bacteria, it means you're going to get all those positive effects. You're going to get that butyrate production that I just mentioned and and have the anti-inflammatory effects of of that, uh, as well as helping with insulin sensitivity. So people respond to insulin better, so they have less circulating insulin in their body and their blood sugar levels are able to be regulated. That can be good for weight management, you know, plethora of benefits. And and this comes from this really special nutrient called resistant starch, which similarly to prebiotic fibres is often lacking in our diet, uh, you know, because it's found in such, again, obscure uh, foods. You've got to be in very rich in green bananas, so an unripe banana, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, in Australia, it's kind of amazing that there's some farmers up in North Queensland that have really done an amazing job of spreading the word about green banana and green banana flour uh, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then you've got things like unmodified potato starch, which again is not really something that people include all that much, but it's something that could be added into a smoothie as an example, as one of the denser sources of resistant starch. And then you have like, you know, in, in another type of resistant starch, which I know is one that, you know, you're into, which is like overnight oats when you don't cook the oats mm-hmm. and you get, uh, and so you get some resistant starch from things like that. Uh, similarly, if you cook and then cool your grains or potato, as an example, you actually can develop resistant starch as it cools. So uh, you actually can reheat the food after it cools and the resistant starch still is there in that type of resistant starch. That's awesome. That's such a practical suggestion for our listeners as well. And cold pasta, and then I reheat it the next mm. day. So I do some meal prep on a Sunday, and I always use um, some of the rich, uh, high fiber sort of pasta, and then I'll, I'll cool yeah. it and I'll put it in the fridge. And then that's sort of a wonderful source of resistant starch for um, yeah. like good gut bacteria as well. It's one of my favorite ways to eat it, is in pasta. Yeah, that, no, that, and you seriously, people like, I think people realize that they feel so much fuller from mm. those sorts of dishes, but I don't think anyone ever sort of really sat down and thought about what's the science <laughs> behind this? Why do I feel like this? And so I just find it so interesting because it's been shown that uh, when you consume resistant starch together with protein, and so think about even some of those pastas like the legume-based pastas mm. as an example, which already have some resistant starch in them naturally from the legumes, then you cook and cool it so you're, you know, developing even more. Uh, and then And then following that, depending on what you pair it with, if you do or if not, they've already got protein in them. Um, When you combine resistant starch with protein at a meal, it's shown just that you are so not hungry for hours and hours and hours following. Uh, And so it's very beneficial for weight management, for becoming lean, all of that. So I think it's really cool when you can work out what the science behind how you feel uh, how it works. 100% agree. And I remember one of my friends was over here and we had a bit of a, we were just sort of catching up, having a bit of a work meeting one day. And I gave her one of my meal preps for lunches because we were sort of hungry and we didn't want to, it was raining and we didn't want to go out. And I remember she sort of looked at mm. it and she's like, that is not enough pasta. I think I'd used maybe 35 grams raw when I was sort of doing my meal prep. And I was like, trust me, you are going to feel so full. And she just <laughs> did not believe me. And it was the, I'd used the San Remo um, pulse pasta. The, I think it was based on yeah. green peas and lentils and that sort of thing and I'd use the smallest amount of it I'd cooled it in the fridge and then we reheated it and not only was it delicious but she's like she couldn't even finish it she's like I am so full and I had some protein in there I had plenty of you know stir-fried vegetables and I didn't even have like a a creamy or a heavy sauce I'd literally just used I think a bit of soy a bit of garlic and ginger and some uh, cumin as well and that was it. So the mm. sauce is very, very lean as well. And she just could not get over how full she was. So I 100% agree <laughs> with you. It's it's one of my favorite ways to eat because it is just so filling. It's so satiating. Yes. Um, so I guess between Australians and Americans, do you believe that we eat enough prebiotics or do you think that we have a lot of room to sort of make that up in our diets? Oh, there there is so much room to make that up. <laughs> There's so much room. Like if you're consuming that legume-based pasta every day and you're also making at breakfast time maybe you're making something that has some asparagus in it and salads in in the evening that include the raw onion and you know maybe 
you're hitting it. But on a whole, uh, I I genuinely believe that there is something lacking in in majority of people's diets, and and I just know how amazing people feel as soon as they bring it in. Like it's it's just instantaneous. Just like you spoke about your friend consuming the pasta mm-hmm. and and feeling it. Uh, it seems to be an automatic that. Uh, once people bring in the prebiotics, uh, both from a satiety effect, but also from the digestive health effect. So, you know, it, often people that have really sensitive stomachs and, and they've been very nervous about what they can eat and things are setting them off. What we find is that when you actually get some prebiotics into their diets and their, and their gut lining becomes stronger, they then can tolerate more foods and so it's like they come back to life. You know, they're no longer worried about, about what they're eating, causing them to get super bloated or super, you know, having to run to the bathroom because they're, as much as these foods may have originally seemed like, you know, you're nervous because they could be trigger foods, when they slowly bring them into their diets, they actually, as I said, strengthen their gut lining and as a result can tolerate more foods and that becomes an added bonus as well. 100%. And I think that's probably the biggest fear about people that suffer from IBS and, you know, sometimes very de- debilitating, you know, symptoms. And, you know, some people can't even leave the house, that sort of thing. And so there is a lot of that fear. And it typically is known that a lot of these prebiotic types of foods do exacerbate some of our IBS symptoms. But as you mentioned, I think it's so important to keep in mind that although it seems like it's it's giving you worse symptoms in the short term, by eliminating them altogether, you're actually doing more damage in the long Long term, And that's the thing with the low FODMAP diets that I say to so many people, you know, they're doing it for years sometimes before they come into my clinic. And I say, you're actually doing more harm than good because the majority of FODMAPs are naturally occurring prebiotics, aren't they? Yeah, it's 100% correct. And it's very interesting over here in America because I feel like Australia is almost a little bit more on top of what the low FODMAP diet is, why it was created. It was developed at the university that that I went to Mm. and so I've been you know uh, across it for years and years and I also had a private practice almost a decade ago now amazingly and I worked with IBS all the time Mm. and and it was it it was very interesting to at least I feel like in Australia slightly more people understand that you know it's a it's a diet that is to work out what your trigger foods are and yes some people you know I've heard you on another podcast explaining that you know, people then they, they think that, oh, I've removed it and I feel better, so I should just stay off it. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, compared to in America, it's almost seen as like, I put in quotation marks, a diet. Like it's real. like people think that if it's something's got a low FODMAP sticker on it, that it's going to help them lose weight or it's, you know, forever going to be better for them just, you know, because it's called low FODMAP. And I think, well, there's a big education piece that's required there because, mm-hmm. As we know, like it is a short-term diet to determine which foods are really the triggers within all those FODMAP-rich foods. And then you slowly bring them back in and you also potentially work out your tolerance level of even the ones that can exacerbate your problems. So a lot of the time, you know, someone would come to me and they'd say, oh, by lunchtime I've had X, Y, Z and then I look pregnant. And I'd say, well, hold on, like maybe we shouldn't be having X, Y and Z all on the same day, mm-hmm. but you could probably tolerate X, um, you know, sorry for using letters instead of foods, <laughs> but I, I think people, I think people, hopefully people are understanding uh, the method to my madness is that, you know, if milk and the high-fibre cereal and the cruciferous vegetables are all you know, causing you to blow up. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't have the cow's milk and the cereal together. Maybe have a, a plant-based milk with a smaller amount of the cereal and then try to have some of the other vegetables that are rich in prebiotics but are not, are not the cruciferous ones, as an example, that might cause more gas anyway. Uh, and what people often found was that just by changing up which days they ate what and what volume they consumed, they're able to bring in so many more foods into their diets and not get the negative side effects, but reap the benefits of consuming those prebiotic rich foods. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a wonderful tip for our listeners at home. Too often, you know, people think about their triggers for IBS almost in like an allergy sort of way, like they just avoid it altogether because they're so afraid that it'll set off their symptoms. But we really need to remember that 
each of us has a natural tolerance level to, you know, naturally occurring prebiotics. And as you mentioned, some days, if you have too much of a load on that day, you're going to set off your symptoms. Whereas if you just back off it a little bit and say, um, you know, instead of having a full cup of lentils in a meal, maybe just have a quarter of a cup and boost up the protein with, um, you know, something else as well. And maybe that would be a little bit better for your symptoms. I think we just go sort of go too hard and then it sets off our symptoms and it creates that deep fear inside of us. So I personally am really trying to um, increase my, I guess, range of prebiotic foods that I eat as well because I personally suffer from IBS and I get quite a lot of symptoms from the lentils and the beans and that sort of thing. So I now know not to put them with things like, you know, a lot of onion and broccoli and cauliflower if I'm going to trial them because I'm just going to end up in a world of pain at the end of the day. So I try a really (laughs) small amount, maybe, um, you know, just in a simple stir fry with not too many of those windy vegetables and maybe um, a quarter of a cup of lentils and sort of see how I go. Yeah, that's exactly what I'd be recommending. And similarly, I would I would recommend people to look for resistant starch-rich prebiotic foods Mm. rather than solely the soluble fibre-rich foods because, as I explained, because they're known to selectively fuel the good bacteria, you're less likely to get the growth of of some of the bad bacteria or the ones that therefore lead to, you know, the excess gas and some of the more painful symptoms and rather you're just going to be nourishing your gut. And so, you know, I find that a lot of people don't get negative side effects when they roast and then cool a potato and then eat that Uh, uh, or when they eat the cold pasta or when they eat the overnight oats or if they make up some, you know, some bliss balls or protein balls where they grind up some oats Mm -hmm. and they put that in there with some nut butter and things like that, people are usually fine. So I think it's about being a bit creative with what we know and which all these specialty ingredients, just like the green banana flour can be worked into, it can be added into a smoothie. And Mm. so, you know, you can get a really dense source of resistant starch then and there uh, to get, you know, almost your daily requirements per se. I wouldn't be telling people to have only one type of prebiotic every day and and not have anything else. But for that particular day, uh, you could get it in in your smoothie and be done with it. Definitely. And I think really, um, as you mentioned before, diversity really is key. So continuously trying different foods that you may perhaps have reacted to in the past. And I love that you really um, focused on the resistant starch there because they're really easy types of foods that we can incorporate into our diets. And, you know, I've seen pancake and waffle recipes using um, using the green banana flour as well. So it's a lot of different recipes that you'll find online. And then by having those um, resistant starches regularly, you almost strengthen that gut bacteria wall, don't you? Which is in the long term, going to allow you to tolerate more of these naturally occurring prebiotics? Yeah, definitely. I would would recommend to people, though, one thing around resistant starch is that depending on the type of resistant starch, if you, some can be heated and some can't. So like we discussed, you know, the pasta and the potatoes, how they develop the resistant starch after they've been heated and therefore you can then reheat them and it's still there. With something like the unmodified potato starch or the green banana flour, that's got what you call resistant starch type 2. And we don't need to get too technical, but Mm -hmm. basically that particular type, once it's heated over, you know, it it gets sort of a bit too high, above 180 degrees or so, I think it's above 160 degrees. Uh, And also there's not not loads of scientific studies for us to like pinpoint the exact number and through the exact duration. But what we know is that if you're baking with the resistant starch from the green banana flour, you're you're likely going to lose it. It's going to basically transform into something more similar to a regular flour. So the resistant starch is diminished. I do find that with things like pancakes, if you cook them on a lower heat and it's sort of quick, uh, it it often, it it seems like the resistant starch is still there. I think that people feel quite satiated from it. I've never measured the resistant starch of the pancake to be able to be quoted on that. Uh, And I don't believe there's a study that shows us that either. But I would... I would just recommend to people that if they see green banana flour being marketed as a baking flour, Mm -hmm. uh, that they know that the resistant starch won't, won't be maintained once they heat it in that way. Mm, that's a great tip for our listeners, Cara. I actually didn't know that. So I've been, you know, recommending green banana pancakes to everyone. So I might back off that one and we'll go with the cold pasta instead. Or the, as you mentioned, the overnight oats. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I like, as I said, I think if you include a little bit of it in a pancake and you cook it on a low heat and mm. it's for 30 seconds or so, I reckon that some of it stays there. Uh, but I, I do think that if people are putting them into their muffins and their cakes and things like that, you're likely losing pretty much all the resistant starch benefits. So, so yeah, maybe skip that one if your goal is to support your gut health. Oh, I love that. Dietitians teaching dietitians. There you go. Thank you, Cara. <laughs> now, my last question for you is, um, is, there, is there a recommended amount of um, prebiotics that we should be getting in each day? I know fiber targets in Australia, about 25 grams or 30 grams, um, you know, it's supposed to be 25 grams for women. I normally say 30 grams overall for everybody. Is there a recommended yeah. um, amount for just specifically prebiotics? It's an interesting question because different different types of prebiotics you have to have a different amount to have an effect to have, for it to have a positive effect. Mm-hmm. And so there'll be some prebiotics, uh, and I'll go into a little bit more depth so that this makes sense. Uh, but there's some prebiotics that we only, it's been shown that we only need one gram per day, and and you're done. And that's in a, a type of a particular type. It's too scientific. For today, I think, but you know, it's called a xyloligosaccharide, ZOS, uh, and it's found inside sugar beets. Uh, and it is, it's very effective at just honing in and creating that bifidogenic positive effect. Whereas other types, like a lot of the soluble fibers that you find inside a lot of the vegetables, the fructans, the inulin that's in what we were talking about, most of the, the more commonly consumed ones, mm-hmm. you can need up at like sort of 15 grams a day or it, it ranges. Some people might be down at five, but it, it, it spans up to about 15 grams a day uh, to have that bifidogenic positive effect. So basically some recommendations from key groups in the US is that people try to get at least five grams, but then I would say kind of put it into your fiber if, you've, if you're trying to aim for 25 or 30 grams of fibre, I would usually say aim for about half of that to be coming from a prebiotic source. But this is this is the girl who's like fully cheerleading this nutrient <laughs> on, so I know I'm probably pushing it a bit, a bit far ahead, but I do know that it's possible. Uh, and particularly if you start bringing in those resistant starches, uh, it, it, you, could, you can hit those targets. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners at home, if you had any sort of key foods to be incorporating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that will get you sort of close to, you know, 5, 10, 15 grams of prebiotics a day. Yeah. We talked about using, um, you know, uncooked oats at breakfast um, or maybe some mm-hmm. of that uh, green banana flour in a smoothie. What about your lunch yes. recommendations? Cold pasta is a great option? Definitely. I, yeah, legumes, lentils, cold pastas. Legume-based pastas are like one of my all-time favourites. Mm-hmm. Since I was a student on a budget up until now as a working woman, I will always have mung bean and edamame pasta in mm-hmm. in my house and it is such a go-to. So that's certainly uh, an ingredient that I would recommend if people enjoy it or are open to consuming it. Uh, another favourite of mine, which is amazingly uh, very readily available in Australia, is lupin which is another type of legume Mm -hmm. so uh, lupin is grown in western australia uh, and sort of one of the key areas in the world is western australia and then also in france Uh, and so uh, i think that you know given the aussies that are listening at least that you know if you can get your hands on that and you can the inside lupin inside the flakes or inside the flour you can cook with that it's not resistant starch, it's a soluble fibre. So you could then bake that into, you know, a, a high-protein, high-fibre bread because it is, that's what lupin is, pretty much protein and, and prebiotic soluble fibre. And so I would be saying whip up some muffins, make some bread, anything, create a, a little cereal mix with some nuts and seeds and, and some lupin flakes and you've just got such a, a good option there that will quite easily help you hit your target. That's awesome. And lupin is something that is, it's sort of more people are starting to really know about it. Um, my business partner yeah. that I run my group program, Love Living Lean with Angie, she's obsessed with lupin flakes. She puts them in everything. And we were talking about yeah. a lentil and lupin soup the other day. And when you sort of add the lupin into it, just to, we were just talking about boosting the overall protein content because lupin gram yes. per gram is quite high in protein, um, but not really that high in carbs compared to a lot of other vegetarian or vegan sources of protein. So we've been using it, uh, lupin flakes 
likes to boost a lot of our vegan based recipes and we were um, doing a lentil and lupin soup the other day and it was so beautifully thick because it's winter over here in Australia as well mm. um, it, and mm. I, yeah I didn't even think to you know think about the, the natural prebiotics that were in lupin as well that's wonderful yeah yeah fantastic option uh, and then a, I guess like a random food that doesn't get all that much attention uh, but you, I know you can get it in Australia and definitely in the US is tiger nuts so they're actually a, a root vegetable. They're not a nut. Uh, and you can get them either whole or halved because they're quite tough. Like mm-hmm. they can be a little bit strange for people to bite into for the first time. Uh, but now they're being ground down into flour, into a flour. And similarly to the green banana flour, you shouldn't really be heating it too much. Uh but you do get the resistant starch if, again, if you're someone who likes to make up protein balls or, or slices, breakfast slices and things like that, uh, I would certainly recommend starting to incorporate them as well. Yeah, awesome. And I've actually seen a few. I can't remember the last time I tried Tiger Nuts. It must have been many years. I think a company sent me some back in the day. And my mm. first, I remember my first thought was that this is a really chewy, like this isn't really sort of a nut <laughs> consistency <laughs> at all. <laughs> Um, yes. But I remember they sent me a few recipes to go with that. And just thinking about the lupin mm. flakes as well, a granola is like a, a wonderful recipe that you could sort of make with a little bit of lupin and the tiger nut flour as well. Yes, yeah, definitely. Alrighty. Well, I would love to take a little bit of a deep dive into food and mood because um, I know that's one of your sort of key areas as well. So can you tell our listeners yes. at home, I guess, just that link between food and mood? With pleasure, yeah. So when we look at how nutrition affects our health. One of the key areas that I have always been so passionate about is understanding how nutrition can affect either in a positive or negative way your mental health and well-being. And, you know, my, as we've just been discussing, my particular area is around the gut-brain connection Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the area is now called psychobiotics. So it's an emerging science that looks at how pre and probiotics or any other you know, anything that can affect your gut health can have an effect on your mental well-being. And we find that there's so many pathways uh, that your gut and your brain interact. Uh, and there's actually a direct nerve, the vagus nerve is directly connects our gut to our brain. Mm-hmm. And so messages are able to be sent. And so think about when you've always had, you know, people when they're younger had butterflies in their tummies and they felt they felt nervous and then they had a tummy ache before an exam or before something big was happening and we couldn't really quite put our finger on what it was. Well, it's kind of amazing to now understand that our gut microbes were were speaking to our brain basically through chemical messengers and our gut is where 90 to 95% of our mood calming serotonin is produced and released from Uh, and when we consume prebiotics, the probiotics in our gut are able to ferment those prebiotics and the byproduct, those short-term fatty acids, they actually stimulate the release of that serotonin, as which is the mood-calming hormone, uh, and it also reduces inflammation to our brain. And we now know that uh, inflammation is associated with depression and anxiety and many mental health conditions. So Mm. I think that when we look at it then as a more broad uh, topic rather than just the gut health, anything that's got an inflammatory effect in our body uh, from a dietary perspective can have a negative effect on our mental health and wellbeing and things that have an anti-inflammatory effect can have a positive effect as a result. So high glycemic index, highly refined carbohydrate diets, more sugars, they're known to cause more inflammation. Trans fats and lots of fried foods Mm -hmm. are known to cause uh, inflammation in the body. Uh, Lots of artificial sweeteners uh, and sort of different additives that are used inside foods have been shown to potentially aggravate the gut bacteria and cause inflammation in the body. Then you go from the opposite side What's, what's got an anti-inflammatory effect? Nuts, avocado, all these healthy fats, extra virgin olive oil, uh, legumes and lentils from all these prebiotic resistant starch benefits and, and the gut health benefits that they provide. Uh, and so, you know, it's really interesting to see that what we eat, it, it truly does affect uh, how we think and how we feel. Definitely. And I think anyone who's, you know, ever just sort of, 
even for lack of a better word, cleaned up their diet for a couple of weeks, like you automatically just feel so much better. You have more energy. You, you, you almost want to do things that you didn't want to do before. You know, you're so much more motivated. You know, I have a lot of clients saying to me that their brain fog is reduced. Like they can just think a little bit clearer just from eating a broad Mm -hmm. range of, you know, whole foods and fresh foods. And as you mentioned, different types of anti-inflammatory foods, it can have a huge impact um, just on our mood. And that's without even looking at the studies and the research, just from what I myself, know um, and from what clients have told me as well. Yeah, I really believe that anecdotal proof is it's 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 not the same as the science, but really, like I'm I'm pragmatic, and that is exactly what I could tell. The reason I, you know, originally, like I said, I was looking for I went and started studying this because I myself was feeling really stressed and really down, and I knew from personal experience that when I turned to to cakes and bought poor quality foods when I was once in a, you know, stressful period of my life, that didn't make me emotionally feel better. Mm. Uh, And similarly, a lot of people turn to out, you know, they go out partying and they're drinking Mm -hmm. and that also has, has an inflammatory and a depressive effect on our body. And so the opposite is also true. Nourishing ourselves, yes, there's the element of People feel good from feeling energised and like you're talking about, it can help you feel more more alert, obviously, when you feel yourself correctly. And I think there's almost like an element of control. You know, people feel proud of themselves for, for eating the right foods. That's, you know, that, and that's a whole other topic for another day. But I, I really, I find it really interesting to, and, and I find that a lot of people now are also finding it interesting is how you, you actually can feel that physiological change inside of you. You can actually feel that if you're stressed but you're eating the right foods, it's like you know that it's your mind that's that's stressed but your insides aren't feeling that same heaviness that's that physiological effect because you're at least not getting the overflow of emotions uh, just as a result of your diet. I 100% agree. And too often in the moment, you know, people get caught up. They might be having a really bad day. They might be a bit upset or they might be feeling a bit stressed and they'll go and reach for these foods. But they always say to me, I know that in the moment it kind of makes me feel better, but I always feel worse afterwards. I always feel crappier afterwards. And so I guess it's trying Mm. to, for those people trying to manage that emotion in some other way that doesn't involve food, you know, doing some yoga or meditation or deep breathing or something like that. Definitely. Yeah, finding other ways to calm your mind and that's not in connection to food, uh, I think will always serve people very well. Mm. Um, Now, you touched on alcohol quickly. I was actually going to ask you, in your opinion, what do you think are sort of the worst culprits of gut health? You know, we've talked about all the wonderful things we can do to nourish our gut. What are things that that people might do regularly that are actually really negative in terms of our gut health? Definitely overdoing it with antibiotics unnecessarily and medications and I guess anything that you're putting into your body that's that's chemical in nature that's not uh, not going to have a positive not a supportive effect on your gut is is definitely not good. We find that a lot of people who go unnecessarily on antibiotics end up killing off a lot of their good probiotics and then they their immune system ends up down for longer than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm always very mindful of that and try to recommend to people only using only use these meds if you really need them. Uh, stress, stress is bad for our gut. So, you know, it's a double effect here because when you've got, when you eat poorly, it causes you to be more stressed, but that stress also feeds back into degrading your gut health. So I think that I don't know if that we can call that like you know something a bad culprit of of poor health, but but I think that that if we can manage our stress, that would be very beneficial. Uh, and I truly think that poor diet with all those sort of neck those gut aggravating foods that I just mentioned, those inflammatory and, and gut aggravating foods, is is very detrimental to our gut health. Mm, and it's so interesting that you brought up the concept of stress because for so many people, and the research is really starting to show us the same thing now, stress and IBS kind of go hand in hand. It's almost like what came first, you know, the chicken or the egg. Were they super yeah. stressed and they developed IBS or is the IBS making them more stressed? But a lot of times, you know, people just want to cut out all of these wonderful foods from their diet to manage their IBS, but they don't really realize how significant the impact is on just managing their stress levels. Yes, it's so true. I remember so many times when I had a clinic and I was working one-on-one, just by helping people 
speak through the actual issues in their lives and working out strategies around that, that mental health side of it, they ended up removing a lot of the issues they had with their digestive health troubles and with their irritable bowel. So, so yes, if people can, can, there is a direct connection there and I do think that managing the stress will, will help the gut health issues and, and then it'll be a, hopefully a positive cycle rather than a negative feedback loop. Definitely. All right. Final question for you, Cara. Uh, functional foods. Can you tell our listeners sort of what they are and how they benefit us? There's a lot of, I guess, talk in the media about different types of functional foods, especially here in Australia, but I imagine in the US as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, functional foods, as the name suggests, would be foods that are able to have usually a beneficial sort of functional effect on us. And they can either be naturally functional foods. So, you know, a food that is going to be going to help you stay more alert because it's particularly rich in magnesium someone might then start to position it as a functional food Uh, whereas you also get products food products that are developed to have a functional benefit such as something that can support mental health something that can support blood sugar regulation you've got I know in Australia there's chocolates that look at peak performance and and for exercise and endurance so as long as it's got, you know, a targeted outcome to support your performance, be it health, wellness, endurance, something like that, uh, you can you can create basically a functional food. But it, it is actually, there are variances between if something is a naturally functional food uh, or if it is created, but they, they all can fit under that banner. Mm, and I was going to say, are prebiotics considered functional foods as well? So... As an example, with Uplift Food, with my brand, I have I have exactly positioned it that way because I'm showing people that by nourishing your gut, you're supporting your mental well-being, and therefore those prebiotics are taking a functional role to support your mood. Uh, you also could say exactly the same thing about digestive health, right? Like if you said that you were eating prebiotics because you wanted to have proper digestive health and more regular bowel motions and and that, then it will have a functional activity. So, yes, prebiotics can definitely be uh, a nutrient that is part of a functional food. Wonderful. And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Uplift Food, Um, when you sort of developed it, why you sort of came up with, um, with the concept of creating a brand for this? Yeah, with pleasure. So I started Uplift Food uh, back in Australia. I launched it in Australia originally uh, in March in 2018 uh, with a really strong focus around around educating people that getting more prebiotics into your diet can ultimately make you the happiest version of yourself and therefore take on the world in whatever aspect that is. And so I launched in Australia and then quite rapidly after got invited into an accelerator program here in America and I've launched the company in both countries now uh, with the first product being the Daily Uplifter, which is an organic plant-based and allergen-free natural powder that I've incorporated a lot of these specialty ingredients that we've spoken about today, things like the green banana flour and the Jerusalem artichoke and a range of other uh, nourishing ingredients that have been shown uh, in science to support gut health mental health uh, and or both. And so I developed it in a way that I felt that a lot of the time on the market you see all these products that have a sprinkling of one specialty ingredient and they call it out as if it's going to have all these benefits and then, you know, you look at how much you actually need to have a functional benefit and it's nowhere near what mm-hmm. they included. So, so I really try to put the knowledge that I had from these years of research and, and being focused in this area of gut-brain connection to create this really consumer-friendly product that anyone who's already making a smoothie or protein balls or or eating cereal and wants to sprinkle something over it can just easily do uh, and get these you know, very rich source of prebiotic fibres and resistant starches uh, as well as I've got high vitamin D mushrooms in there that provide 50% of your daily requirements of vitamin D, which we know is and has an anti-inflammatory effect, as an example. And so I launched with that product, uh, and I am now working on creating some functional snacking foods uh, that hopefully will launch uh, in the US in a couple of months and slowly, slowly after in Australia 
if, if things go to plan, uh, so that people can get these gut-healthy prebiotic nutrients in, in formats that are sort of a bit more grab-and-go for that busy lifestyle. Yeah, that's so exciting. Now, can we, can we buy them? Are they in shops or is it mostly just from your website online? So the Daily Uplifter, which is the only product available at the moment, plus all the eBooks that I've written with a whole lot of really useful information if people want to learn more about either prebiotics, gut health, or mood, mm-hmm. uh, is all available on upliftfood.com.au for the Aussies. Uh, and I even created uh, a, a code for, for your listeners, uh, which is the fitness dietitian to keep it super simple, uh, which gives them $10 off uh, any purchase if they find something that they'd like. Wonderful. And we're confirming that's dietitian, T-I-T, not a C? Yes. Wonderful. I'll pop that in the show notes as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Cara. It's been, it's been a wonderful chat. It's been enlightening for me. You know, don't cook green banana pancakes is probably my biggest <laughs> take home. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, all good. I'll go back to my, I'll go back to my normal, my normal pancakes, you know, making them on the, um, using my oats and my berries instead. Very good. <laughs> if you had three top tips for our listeners, three really quick take-home messages to improve their gut health, if they were sort of feeling a little bit overwhelmed and they're just thinking, oh, I don't even know where to start, what would three really simple, easy things, um, what would be your three top recommendations? Just a starting place. Try to reduce your stress in, and, and you can work out how you believe that would be best for you, but really mm-hmm. focus on reducing stress. Uh, Reduce your intake of a lot of those artificial ingredients that's through a lot of food products these days and just trying to go for those more whole, real foods. Uh, And then opposed to reducing what you could bring more into your diet is far more plant-based, prebiotic-rich foods. Wonderful. I love those three tips. And finally, just before I let you go, where can people follow you? You're the Travelling Dietitian on Instagram. Let us know your handle. Um, Do you have another website besides Uplift or is is most of your sort of profile on the Uplift Food website? So my 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 previous life is <laughs> travelling dietitian and I'm still on Instagram actively as travelling dietitian, also dietitian spelt the same way as you. <laughs> uh, and so, so you can find me there, Cara Landau, uh, and I also have a a blog which has a lot of prebiotic rich recipes and education as well at travelingdietitian.com. But I'd certainly keep the Uplift Food website is the one that's really kept, you know, up to date on all the latest science now. So I'd highly recommend people sort of stick with me there and Uplift Food also has an Instagram handle for anyone interested. Wonderful. Well, make sure you guys go and give Cara a follow and go and check out those websites if you're wanting to know more about how wonderful prebiotics are in our diet. And Cara, thank you so much for joining us um, all the way from the US. I really appreciate you coming on and I'm sure our listeners got so much out of this episode today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I hope to see you in New York City very soon, hopefully. (laughs) Perhaps next year. (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) We can go and grab some um, some high resistance starch foods and a coffee. (laughs) That sounds delightful. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on, Cara. My pleasure. That's it for today, guys. I really hoped you enjoyed that podcast with Cara on prebiotics. And if you enjoyed it, please, please leave me a rating or a review in the Purple iTunes podcasting app. Now, if you have any experts that you would love for me to bring on the show or interview, please leave me a review and um, list their names below. And I will try my best to get them on the podcast so we can all learn much more about gut health together. I'll catch you guys in the next podcast.